Today, we wrap up a series we've been in for the last several weeks. We've called it The Pursuit of Happiness. And we've seen over the last weeks that Jesus has this prescription for a truly blessed, a truly happy life. But hey, it's been a bit of a surprise. It's quite different than the life we would typically think of. Now, we we gave a description to this blessed life. My definition that we've used throughout this series is this. The blessed life is a profoundly satisfying one. It's a life of flourishing regardless of our external circumstances. Now, you would think that someone who is humbly recognizing their spiritual poverty, that they're, they're living with this attitude of repentance, they're, they're humble and meek, they're hungry for righteousness, they're, they're merciful and they're showing that both as a character trait and as a lifestyle choice. You'd think that someone who is a peacemaker and who tends to draw people together rather than separate them, wouldn't you think that that person would really be appreciated? I mean, I would think that kind of person would be revered and respected by the world. That's the kind of person that, frankly, I want to be around. I want to hang out with those kinds of people. You would think they would get the praise of everyone. But that's why today's passage that we wrap up with in this series is such a shocker. We read in Matthew's gospel, chapter 5 and verse 10, these words, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus turns it from the third person to a very personal second person pronoun here in verse 11. Blessed are you, not those, but you. It's like he's turning it right to his disciples here. Blessed are you when people insult you. Huh? I don't want to be insulted. Persecute you and falsely say all kinds of, I don't want to be slandered against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now that jolts me. That's not my idea of a blessed and happy life. Does God want a life that actually leads to persecution? And yet, if we look at the history of God's people, that's exactly what we see, persecution has kind of been par for the course for Christ's followers from the very beginning. So let's unpack this together today, and, and I want to do so by asking a series of questions. My first question is simply this, is persecution real, or are we just imagining this? In other words, are Christians just belly aching a little bit? Has it become common just to have a pity party and to kind of exaggerate the situation, or is this truly real? Well, as we just saw, Jesus mentions verbal abuse here. He says in verse 11, 
blessed are you when people insult you. He's talking about a verbal insult. And while children may stand on the playground and sing the little ditty, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never harm me, we know that's not true. If you've lived very long in the world, you know that words can do a world of damage. So an insult, pretty hard to take. But then he mentions slander. He says here, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Now, this is a cowardly kind of persecution. An insult is to your face, it's direct. Slander is behind your back, but it can still do a world of damage to your character, and it also is very real persecution. You see, Jesus just kept it real with his disciples, and I I love that about him. He said to them in John, as recorded in John's gospel, chapter 16, he said, in this world, you will have trouble. Now, I wonder, I'm gonna see a show of hands right now at all of our campuses. How many of you, like Debbie and me, Debbie and I, we, Debbie and I have a lot of these sayings on our walls in our, in our home, scripture verses, like Psalm 5.3, you know, in the morning, O Lord, you hear my voice, and talks about waiting in expectation. And we have little sayings that we just love because they're, they're inspirational. They warm the heart, little knickknacks, if you will, in terms of plaques on the wall. We love that. How many of you have some scripture verses on your wall, some kind of sayings that you love? Wow, that's a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of people. Awesome. I wonder, do any of you have... John 16, 33 on your wall? In this world, you will have trouble. That doesn't exactly warm the heart, does it? I mean, I don't have that one on my wall. Or how about this one, Matthew 10, 16, where Jesus said, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Anybody got that one on your wall? No, we, we, we don't. We don't like knickknacks like that. We don't like to be reminded because sheep are vulnerable. I wish, I wish Jesus had chosen a different metaphor there because sheep get eaten by wolves. So as we ask this question, the first one, is the persecution real or are we just imagining or perhaps exaggerating this? Here's the factual record, folks. The book of Acts is the history book in the Bible, 28 chapters in the history book. 22 of the 28 chapters deal with Christians being persecuted. So when I hear people say, oh, Brother Rex, I want to get back to the book of Acts. I don't. Oh, I know what they mean. They want the power. They want the miracles. They want the spectacular things, you know, that... They want to be transported from one place. They want the the spectacular stuff, but but the price that they paid with their blood was enormous. The persecution was very real. And so Paul says to his young mentee, Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, look, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. 
but I just don't think you want to put that on your wall at home. I, I just don't believe that warms the heart. But 22, 22 out of 28 chapters in the book of Acts deal with Christians being persecuted. But can, can I go just a little further? Because I've learned over decades of ministry that most Christians don't, it's not insulting, I'm just telling you what I've learned, most Christians don't have a clue about church history. I mean, they just don't. We, we don't study it. Why would we? Most people just don't have much interest in that. But see, the book of Acts ends in the early 60s AD. That's when the record ends in the book of Acts. Most of the severe persecution happened even after the book of Acts finished. For instance, one well-documented outbreak of persecution started in AD. It wasn't the first time. There had been other persecutions where Christians had had their property confiscated and all that. Read the book of Hebrews. It talks about that a little bit in chapter 10 of Hebrews. But the city of Rome, a huge portion of it burned. And although the psychotic emperor Nero was suspected as setting the fire himself, so he could build the city back grander and more opulently for his own glory, he needed a scapegoat because thousands of people were homeless and mad. And he thought, maybe we could pin it on those Christians. I mean, they're always talking about a fiery conflagration at the end of the age, Maybe, maybe people would believe that they set the fire. They were behind this disaster. And from that point on, it had happened before, like I said, but from that point on, there was regular persecution. Christians were thrown to wild beasts in various arenas. They were covered with tar and burned at, at, as literally ways to light Nero's garden parties. These are all well-known and documented facts. And yet, in spite of this kind of persecution, here's what you need to know. Christianity flourished. I mean, they were being killed. They were being slaughtered and tortured. And yet, for 300 years, it just flourished in spite of the torture, in spite of the imprisonment, in spite of the confiscation of property by the government, and all these ongoing attempts to stamp out this growing movement, it grew and grew and grew. It was just amazing. But then something happened. We're not going to stay here all day, but I just want you to know a little bit about church history here. You need to know this. This is important. Something happened in 313 A.D., that dramatically changed things for Christians. The Roman Emperor Constantine became a Christian. Now, I don't have time to go into the controversy that surrounds that. If you're really curious, you, you can read tons about it. But some people simply believe it was a political expedient move that he made, just kind of looking at this movement going, hey, this movement is getting so strong. There's so many Christians here. If I declare myself a Christian, I'll have the undying devotion of all these Christians on my side. And they believe he was just being a shrewd politician. 
Others believe that Constantine had a genuine conversion and that he was truly born again and became a sincere disciple of Jesus. We can't settle that debate right now. But here's what we do know. In 313 AD, from the city of Milan in Italy, Constantine issued the Edict of Milan, sometimes called in history the Edict of Toleration. Here's what that meant. From now on, these people have been hunted down and killed and had their property taken away and have been horribly slaughtered. From now on, they were to be tolerated. They could live within the Roman Empire, Constantine said, without fear of persecution. Wow, what a day. Now, several decades passed, 30, 67 years to be exact, until on February the 27th, 380 AD, the emperor Theodosius made an even bolder move, and he made Christianity now the official religion of the Roman Empire. You say, hallelujah, what a wonderful thing. The Christians are now in control of the government, baby. They've got all the power. Be careful. Be careful before you shout hallelujah. Before the edict of toleration, it cost you something to be a Christian. You declared yourself, you got baptized, you know you might be killed because of it. But you didn't care because Jesus was everything to you. But now, now it cost you not to be a Christian. You couldn't do as well in business now after Theodosius did what he did unless you called yourself a Christian. And all the privileges that went with that You know what happened? Christianity began to decline. Oh, there were tons of people in the church buildings, but they were primarily nominal believers who simply wanted to be a part of what was popular. They had a form of Christianity without the true substance of it. Now, we live in a world today where believe it or not, millions of Christians around the world are still severely persecuted. There are numerous organizations that keep up with this. Uh, Just to get the latest statistics, I checked out three or four key websites this week just to make sure my statistics were up to date. And so, conservatively speaking, there are 340 million Christians worldwide that reside in countries where they still faced active hostility and possibly they could die simply because of their faith in Jesus Christ. That is as we speak, 340 million, conservatively speaking. North Korea is the worst offender. Countries are actually ranked in a number of these websites by how hostile they are to the Christian faith. North Korea right now is number one. Being a Christian in North Korea today is a virtual death sentence. And if you're not outright killed, you're likely taken to a prison camp, a labor camp, where the current emperor has totally expanded and revamped them. There are an estimated 50 to 70,000 Christians imprisoned today in North Korea 
because of their faith in Jesus. They're called political prisoners. So the answer to the first question, is the persecution real or are we just imagining this? The answer is, it is very, very real and it is still happening today on all kinds of levels. But, but let me ask a second question now because we need to move on quickly. Why are Christians persecuted? Again, I want to return to what I kind of broached earlier, this subject of, dude, I don't know about you, but I want to be around people like that who are meek and humble and merciful and have pure hearts and who are hungry for God and for the things of God. I mean, doesn't that make you a better husband? Doesn't that make you a better wife? Doesn't that make you a better friend and a better coworker? So, my goodness, why are Christians persecuted? Well, I want to suggest two reasons. There are probably many, but these, I believe, are the two most prominent. One reason is spiritual blindness. Spiritual blindness. Now, if you're relatively new to the Bible and to Christianity, I would ask you to really focus in right now. You need to understand this reality. Scripture teaches that before someone comes to faith in Christ, there is a blindness that has really blinded them from seeing the light of the gospel. In fact, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, the man or woman without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. He goes on, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The natural mind apart from the enablement of God, simply cannot embrace the gospel. So, so here's our dilemma today as Christians. The most marvelous message in the world, the message the whole world needs, cannot be understood or believed through natural, natural intellectual reasoning. Now put that in your pipe and smoke it for just a moment. Just think about that for a moment. It's only as God draws a person and gives spiritual illumination that the gospel makes any sense at all and can be embraced. Until that spiritual blindness is removed, people cannot believe. You say, does Scripture really? Well, here's another verse. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And even if our gospel is veiled, and indeed it is, people are blinded from it. They just, they cannot see it. It is veiled to those who are unbelieving. Those who are perishing. In whose case, the God of this world, who is that? Satan, the devil, that's the God of this world. It's just one of the many names or phrases used to describe him in the Bible. The God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving that they might not see the light. Some of you have asked, why can't my family get it? Oh, I've been talking to my friend at work. I just love her, but she just seems to be, why can't she see it? This is your answer. So they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So when it comes to evangelism, when it comes to sharing the gospel, we are 
utterly dependent upon God drawing and revealing himself to people. Again, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, therefore I tell you that no one who is speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus be cursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord. No one can make that declaration really genuinely, authentically, all in. I believe this with all my heart. No one can do that except by the Holy Spirit. Now, the implications oh, I wish we had like five hours to camp out here. We don't. Oh, I just got to skim the mountaintops. The implications of this are sobering. If we ever begin to think that our effectiveness as Christians or as a church is going to depend on how clever we are, we need to get a life or how cutting edge our techniques, how cool our music is, how wonderful our styles are. We have factored God out of the equation. I believe, personally, that's the reason so many conversions are not authentic. The person kind of got moved. They kind of got Christianized, if you will, but not genuinely converted. Now, don't get me wrong. We should always speak the gospel in the clearest way we can. We should, I believe, always use the best techniques we're aware of, but we must do it all with the sound conviction that apart from God drawing the person and that spiritual blindness being removed, there will be no genuine conversions taking place. So what I'm saying is that one of the reasons that Christians are persecuted is because the unbelieving mind is in a spiritual fog. And frankly, we're generally afraid of things we don't understand, and so we oppose it. I hope this is encouraging slightly to some of you because some of you right now are facing opposition from your family for being a Christian, from your friend group or what you used to call your friend group, but they're freaked out by your new values. <laughs> Who do you think you are? You think you're better than us? What's gone wrong with you? Hey, you used to be a lot more fun. I loved it when you used to get blasted with us. I love it when you used to tell those jokes that got us rolling on the floor. What's wrong with you? They may not like your new priorities. That's okay. You keep on representing Jesus well to them, and he will use you to get through to their hearts. The second reason that Christians are persecuted is because of sinful human nature. Sinful human nature. Now, now here's what I mean by that. The heart of the Christian message is this. Jesus is Lord. Guess what that means? I'm not. I'm not number one. Sinful human nature hates that message. 
there is nothing about the gospel that will stroke your ego. Nothing. Now, self-help will stroke your ego and do-it-yourself religion and pull yourself up by your brute steps. That stokes your ego. It says, yes, you can be your own God. Yes, you can save yourself. Yes, you can be wonderful on your own. The gospel doesn't say that. The gospel says that it's all by grace through faith. It's unmerited or it's not real. So Stephen, the first Christian martyr, when he was about to be literally executed by stoning, he said to the people who were about to kill him, you stiff-necked people, with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. So, got to move on, but the church of Jesus is persecuted for many reasons. I think the two most prominent are spiritual blindness and the fact of sinful human nature. But we need to go down home stretcher. I want to ask my third and final big question, and that is how should we respond? Because, you know, we, we always have to get practical, right? We, we never want to leave it in the realm of theory. We never want to leave it just in the realm of theology. We always want to get it down into shoe leather. How do we then live? I believe, if you've not been shocked already, you need to take an extra sip of coffee right now. Buckle your seatbelt because you're about to be really shocked. Okay, here's what Jesus said. Bless are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Jesus, are you serious? Aren't we supposed to whine and sulk? Say, I don't, aren't we supposed to strike back and get revenge? Shouldn't we return insult for insult? Jesus says, no, no, no. I want you to rejoice. He gives two reasons. One, they're right here. One is because your reward in heaven is great. Matthew 5, 12, rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. Now, if you read Jesus very much and you really listen to what he's saying, you'll see Jesus put a lot of emphasis, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, on rewards in heaven. Rewards in heaven. I mean, one example of that would be Matthew 6, verse 19, where he said, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. He puts the emphasis on, look, get, don't, don't, don't get all enamored with this world just for the sake of the world because your real life is is still to come. You, you need to be getting ready. Everything you do here is just getting you ready for your real life in heaven. So I get a little worried about some of us. 
I wonder if we're a little overly excited about this world. So let me ask you, are you excited about this world, period? Or are you excited about this world only because you get to partner with God here in his kingdom mission? Now, there's a big difference in those two motivations, And when we work with heaven in mind, it energizes our work greatly because this world is temporary, heaven is eternal. This world is fleeting, heaven is forever. So the word is hold the things of this world loosely because you ain't taking it with you when you go. That doesn't mean it's wrong for us to get some rewards here. It doesn't mean that it's an evil or bad thing when you get a plaque for being woman of the year in your company. There's nothing wrong with that. Just say that's cool. There's nothing wrong with someone thanking you for your hard work or for your generosity. Or There's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. But any award you receive down here pales in comparison to what awaits you in heaven. So Jesus said, look, rejoice and be glad because your reward in heaven is going to be awesome. It is great. But the second reason he gives us for rejoicing is here where he says, he says, you need to do this because you're not alone. You can rejoice because you're not alone. You see that in verse 12 where he says, in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You're not alone. You aren't the first to be persecuted. You won't be the last. You can rejoice because your reward in heaven is great and you are not alone. You're in good company. So stay positive, stay joyful. God's got this. So one of the overarching messages you're hearing today is that the church of Jesus has always been strongest when times were quite difficult. In fact, Jesus even makes this staggering statement in Luke chapter six where he says, woe to you when all men speak well of you, for that's how their fathers treated the false prophets. Now, I feel like we need to give a huge caveat here because I've seen Christians get all pompous because they were getting persecuted. But it wasn't for righteousness' sake. If you're being persecuted because you're obnoxious, that's on you. If you're being persecuted because you're unkind or hypocritical, look, that's on us. That's not being persecuted for righteousness' sake. But if we ever get to the point where all the secular media and all the politicians and all the unbelievers in general are speaking in glowing terms about, oh, those wonderful Christians. You better think twice before you shout hallelujah. One of the greatest modern examples of the church thriving through persecution would be in this last half of the 20th century in China. China, by the way, is still on the top 10 list of most 
difficult places to be a real Christian. Christian missionaries began to worry back in the mid-20th century when in 1949, Mao Zedong came to power in China. Now, work had been going on, wonderful Christian work since uh, the Hudson Taylor started the China Inland Mission. It had gone on in the 1800s and early 1900s. Awesome stuff. By about 1951, though, under Mao's regime, it was obvious that Western missionaries were going to have to go. And oh, the outcry in America and in the West. This is the demise of Christianity in China. All these wonderful years of work are going to go down the tubes under this communist government. Now, they did have an official church that was recognized and registered and ruled and restricted by the government, and they could still meet in their church buildings, and they'd have government officials come and kind of watch them like spies and check them out. And this registered church was allowed to keep on operating openly, but most Christians decided to go underground because they looked at that registered church and said, nah, that's not real. We're not gonna be able to be who Jesus called us to be in that wineskin. Now, they decided to go underground. And so people in the West were saying, how can the church possibly thrive when Christians are being hunted down and imprisoned and killed? But those who made those dire predictions weren't learning the lesson from church history. Here's the lesson from church history. As Tertullian, almost 2,000 years ago, put it so poignantly, he said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So what's the outcome? Here we are some 70 years later. What's happened in China? For every one Christian that was in China then, there are 80 today. It seems so counterintuitive, but suffering has produced fertile soil for the gospel to flourish. So as I end, let me say this. Some of you are looking at me a little weird, and I get it. Pastor Rex, are you suggesting today that we should seek persecution and pray for it? Absolutely not. To me, that would be insane. What I am saying, is that the record throughout church history is that when Christianity is popular and easy, Christianity flounders. But when it costs you something to be a Christian, the record is clear. Christianity flourishes. So blessed are you when it costs you something to follow Jesus. Father, I don't think we can accept this message apart from the Spirit of God in helping us to do it. So would you drive this supernaturally home to our hearts today and help us to see that there's something about your gospel that just cuts at the ego. It just cuts at the pride of human nature. And people don't want to be humbled like that. To admit 
that they're sinners, separated from God, and that we cannot save ourselves. Father, help us to have eyes that see so clearly. Father, we would be right in step with you and what you're up to in this world. I thank you for all we've learned as we've looked at these Beatitudes, and I thank you that you've called us to a life of genuine flourishing. Father, I pray for all those right now that are kind of in that that zone of uncertainty. Would you nudge them over the edge right now? Would you show them that you are the way and the truth and the life and that no one comes to the Father except through you? Would you convince them right now that this is the life you have for them? And may they respond in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.